Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Sports, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Keith Rathbone, and I'm coming to you from Macquarie University here in sunny, sunny Sydney. I say sunny, sunny. It's literally our first day of sun in three weeks, Uh, but it is sunny. And uh, I'm here today speaking to you. um, uh, I'm speaking to, pardon me, William Morgan, or as I'm going to call him, Bill Morgan. Bill is a professor emeritus at the University of Southern California, and he is the author of a really intriguing book. Um, One of my favorite I've read this year, it's Sport and Moral Conflict, a uh, Conventionalist Theory. And I promise we'll unpack that for people who are sports historians like me. Um, It's out for Temple University Press in 2020. Uh, and I, just people who are listening, I, 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 um, for people who are sports historians or sports sociologists, I, this is a book on sports philosophy. So I, I think our conversation might get more philosophical than some of our other interviews. But I want to emphasize right here at the beginning that this was a really rich book for thinking through some some historical and ethical issues within sports that I, I didn't think I was going to be uh, grappling with. Uh, so I really, I really enjoyed it. And I want to say thank you, Bill, for uh, joining me today. Thank you, Keith. It's a pleasure to be here and to talk to you and your audience. Bill, can you tell me a little bit about how you developed this uh, project? Sure. So I've been doing work in sport ethics for probably the last 20 to 30 years um, and became very interested uh, in particular in terms of various ethical controversies that arose and that are constantly arise uh, in sporting situations and started to look at the philosophical literature and basically um, when dealing with these ethical conflicts. And so let me just give you an example of what I'm talking about. So there was a international cricket match between Australia and New Zealand with one ball of the final over remaining and New Zealand needed a six um, 
uh, to tie the match. And so to prevent that outcome, the Australian uh, captain instructed his bowler, which also happened to be his brother, to deliver the last ball underarm along the ground. Um, now, uh, there was no rule against this, but clearly there was something ethically problematic um, about what the bowler did because it obviously prevented um, the opposing team from coming back. And so when we try to think about there's an always ethical controversies of the of this sort that arise and so you start to think about well how should i think about this um and how 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 might we theorize about this and come up with an ethical theory that helps us to deal with these kinds of controversies and in the literature there were two basic ethical theories um that um were sort of worked out to deal with these kinds of of problems. The first um, was called formalism. And basically, formalism, uh, from an ethical standpoint, simply argued that if you're confronted with an ethical situation, um, that the recourse you have is you simply appeal to the formal rules. Uh, and the rules will guide you and give you ethical guidance as to how you should think about this situation and how you should try to adjudicate or work out conflicts of this kind. The problem, however, with formalism and this appeal to rules is that there's several ways in which rules leave us in the lurch. So one way they do is, first of all, rules are never exhaustive. So there's always going to arise situations in uh, a competition, a competitive sports setting, in which there won't be an applicable rule. An example of that is, and I, I'm going to try to keep my North American sport examples to a minimum because. Um, oh no, we're I, international. You can give. Uh, oh really? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, I did appreciate the underarm bowl incident. My my Aussie listeners are, you know, their ears are pricked. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, in that particular incident too, um, the there was an Australian who was a former member of the Australian team who called it one of the most disgraceful things he had ever seen on a on a cricket field. Um, But to give you an example of uh, an ethical situation that arose where there was no applicable rule, at the turn of the 20th century, there was a baseball game between Louisville and Brooklyn in which a Louisville runner who had just safely crossed home plate turned and pinned the Brooklyn catcher to the ground, wrestled him to the ground and prevented him from tagging two of his teammates who crossed the plate after him. And the rule at the time simply stated that no base runner may interfere with a fielder. Now, the problem is that, of course, once um, this Louisville runner crossed home plate, he was technically no longer a base runner. Uh, so basically, when he took the catcher down and held him down and allowed two of his other teammates to score, Uh, there wasn't any rule against that. So if you're going to appeal to the rules, you're going to immediately have a a major problem here. Like there was no rule. Uh, He broke no rule. And sometimes formalists will argue that as long as um, anything is permissible, as long as it falls within the rules. But this obviously was a problem, an ethical problem uh, in terms of wrestling a catcher to the ground. It's not exactly what we think of as a baseball skill. So one of the problems with formalism and rules is that there's often going to be situations, novel situations arise for which there is no rule. 
The second problem with appealing to rules, as formalists do, is the open texture of the rules. In other words, rules are open to various interpretations. Um, And because they're open to different interpretations, it, it often can be unclear as to how we should decide a case. So there was a recent example where the American golfer Phil Mickelson was having a terrible round um, and on the 13th hole, he, he had hit a ball on the green and then it went off the green and he hit the ball back on the green uh, and it started to roll over on the other side. And he ran and stopped it from going down this little hill uh, and putted it back up on the green. Well, there's a rule in golf that if you interfere with the golf swing, uh, in that manner that you're awarded, or I'm sorry, you're given a two penalty stroke. And however, there's another rule that says that if you uh, monkey with the, with, uh, with uh, striking the ball with a club, that you're subject to disqualification. So the question there is, given the open texture of the rules, which way should you go? In Mickelson's case, he was only uh, given a two penalty stroke, um, and the a lot of people thought he should have been disqualified for what he had done. The third problem with rules is that sometimes uh, following the rule is the exact wrong thing to do. Uh, for example, there was George Brett. Uh, was he played for the Kansas City Royals in the Major League Baseball? And they were playing uh, the New York Yankees, and it was the eighth inning, top of the eighth inning, and the Royals were down by one run. And um, there was a player on base, and uh, Brett hit a home run, and that put his his team up by one run and given them a good chance to win the game. However, after he crossed home plate, the manager of the Yankees at that time was the infamous Billy Martin came to the, to the uh, plate and convened with the umpires. And um, basically, um, he had noted earlier in the season, Martin had noted earlier in the season, that the pine tar that you put on baseball bats near the nub of the, of the bat in the bottom to, to grip, it can only be a certain number of inches above the nub of the base of the bat itself. And it turns out that Brett's um, pine tar exceeded that limit. So technically, he had broken a rule. And basically what happened is that the umpires then declared Brett out because he had used an illegal bat. Now, the problem with that is the pine tar in this particular case certainly didn't aid him hitting a home run. In fact, at anything, if the ball had touched the pine tar, it would have retarded its ultimate um, uh, going over the fence. And so uh, that that um, umpire decision was later overturned by the president of the American League Baseball, arguing, in fact, that it was a home run. And even though a technical rule was broken, it, it far better fits the spirit of the game. Um, that the home run be allowed, and so he ordered the game to be replayed. So again, the problem, another problem with the rule is that sometimes following the rules is actually the wrong thing to do. The last thing, the problem with appealing to rules as formalists do, is it's often hard in terms of penalty-bearing rules 
to get the penalty right, to, compens- to offer the right sort of compa- uh, compensation. So again, there was a, a match, um, football match, what we call in, in the States a soccer match between uh, Uruguay and Ghana. It was a quarterfinal World Cup. Uh, Ghana was the only remaining African nation uh, left in the World Cup, so the hopes of the entire continent rested on Ghana. It was a closely contested game, and near the end of the game, an almost certain goal by a Ghana player um, was stopped, um, not by the goalie who was out of position, but by another Uruguay player who deliberately used both of his hands to stop the goal. Of course, uh, a penalty kick was awarded and the offending player was sent off, but unfortunately, a penalty kick, the Ghana player missed it, and uh, Uruguay went on to actually win the match. So a problem with rules is what's the right compensation here? Surely it was, in this particular case, the penalty was under compensation. It was a sure goal, and even though a penalty kick is a, a distinct advantage, um, they're often unsuccessful. So you could argue that in this case, we have a problem with undercompensation. So again, if you look at ethical controversies from the standpoint of formalism, simply appealing to the rules leaves a lot to be desired. And it was with that in mind that two sport philosophers, uh, Bob Simon, um, the late Bob Simon, uh, and John Russell, developed a position that they took from the philosophy of law, uh, and they called it broad internalism. Before before Bill, we jump into that, I'm I'm on board with you. And I I mean, I want to actually would love to ask a couple other questions about um, uh, formalism. But for people who haven't read the book, um, in some ways, when I'm reading it, it read very much like a protracted conversation with interlocutors within this this very field of sports ethics. And the first the first position you take on is formalism, and then you look at um, this uh, this um, internalism, or <laughs> I, I don't want to mispronounce it, the um, interpretivism. <laughs> yep, that's right, interpretivism. Right, that's yeah. another another way to say another uh, name for this position. Yeah. But is that how, is that how you framed the book when you're writing it? Did you think, all right, I, I'm a I'm a sports philosopher. I'm in a conversation with with other major figures in this field, and you set it out like a conversation explicitly because, yes, I, yeah, okay. yes. So basically, in the, in the first chapter, I take on formalism and I take on uh, Bernard Suits is usually. Uh, uh, I credit it with developing this theory, although he didn't really spend much time looking at it from an ethical standpoint. So basically, I was um, in uh, my interlocutors in that particular case were formalists who who argued that the that at least the rules are explicit. They're set they're set out in advance. There's clarity as to what's supposed to be done in the particular situations and the like. But then when you probe a little deeper, you see all these problems with rules. So then that led me, so this was the one theory that had been developed. The second and last theory that had been developed in the literature was this broad internalism. And and as I said, it came out of the philosophy of law. It was really interesting in law, the way it developed was that there was a um, grandfather who left all of his money to his grandson and they filled out a contract 
Um, and it turns out the grandson then turned around and murdered the grandfather. Um, now, <laughs> uh, the problem here, of course, is that the codicil that they, that they signed and mutually signed and agreed to was perfectly legal. So there was the, if you, if you just look at the rules and the, the philosopher law and that was looking at this case was Ron, the famous Ronald Dworkin. He said, if you just look at the law, the, the rule itself, then the grandson should get the money. But what Dworkin argued is you got to do more than appeal to, to formal rules. You have to look at, consider a moral standpoint. And what he argued is, look, there's a basic moral point here, and that is that no one should benefit from doing harm to somebody else. So what sport philosophers like Bob Simon and John Russell uh, argued then that that's the case in sport as well, that we need to do more than appeal to the rules. So what we really need to do from their standpoint is ask ourselves, what's the point of this particular sport? And what are the relevant skills? And what are the relevant combination of skills? And what demeanor and how hard should we try to win and all those sorts of things? So Russell argued, for example, in that case I mentioned where the um, the uh, Louisville player uh, wrestled the catcher to the ground. Basically, Russell argued, look, um, the point of baseball is good hitting and good defense and the like, and wrestling is not a baseball skill. So what we need to ask ourselves when we're confronted with ethical you know, situations like this, we need to ask ourselves, what's the basic point? What's the purpose of this particular sport? What what are the players trying to accomplish? And uh, what he argued is that when we ask that question, we can derive a general principles of conduct, just like Dworkin did when he said we, no one should uh, uh, benefit from doing harm to somebody else. And in the case of sport, their argument was that we should always interpret the rules and interpret what we should do in controversial situations in terms of what's the overall point of the game itself. And when we do that, we can come up with general moral principles to operate with. And so Russell had this idea of what he called the internal principle. And basically, the internal principle stated that the rule should be interpreted in such a manner that the excellence is embodied in achieving the goal of winning um, are, are um, not undermined but maintained and fostered. And so he, he argued and Simon argued that if we appeal to general and principles like the internal principle, um, that that's the best way to make the game the best it can be as a test of skill and competition. Um, so... What, Ru what Russell and Simon would argue uh, in the various cases I mentioned, including here the underarm bowling, um, is that in, in the case of baseball and the case of cricket in these particular instances, what's going on um, is not anything having to, so much to do with the rules, but basically violating what the point of the game was. Um, so that was their standpoint. Now, I started to think about um, both of these positions, and it seemed to me that broad internalism was a better ethical position than formalism, precisely because it was able to address questions that went beyond the rules. Um, however, I was bothered by how abstract um, um, and 
removed from the historical context in which these games were played that broad internalists were operating. And so as I started to think about it, I thought to myself that actually the better way, the best, perhaps the best ethical theory to resolve ethical conflicts like the ones I've mentioned before is to, yes, look at and consider the question, what is the point of sport? Um, But um, we need to look at the historical context and in particular, the social conventions that are operative at a time that determine uh, how we're interpreting the game. Uh, So my example was that the turn of the 20th century, um, there were two rival outlooks on what sport should be about that uh, we saw uh, at loggerheads in the early Olympic, modern Olympic games. And on one side, we had this English conception of the gentleman amateur uh, who considered sport an avocation that should be played for the love of the game. And so for them, athletic success couldn't simply be reduced to winning or losing, but to having a good competition in which everyone has uh, a pleasurable experience. So for them, athletic success was in, included virtues like being generous to one's opponents when successful and gallant in defeat. They shunned all forms of strategy as vulgar trickery. Um, they refrained from taking competitive advantage of a vulnerable opponent. For, for example, someone dropped their racket playing tennis or ran their boat aground in a, a boat race. They would wait for them to recoup. They wouldn't hire professional coaches. And in general, they, they viewed the game as something to be, you know, you should strive to win, but not too hard to, to the point where it makes it un, uh, unenjoyable for other participants. At that same time, there was an American contingent that had a very professional conception of sport. And in their view, the point of sport was pretty simple, and that is to demonstrate athletic superiority. Um, And they viewed sport as a vocation uh, uh, rooted in the ideal of a career open to talent. They thought that strategy was an important skill in sport, and they thought that you should use all means necessary, scientific and technological, to be successful. So what I argued in my book is, look, here are two different views of what sport is all about, both of them historically situated. So now if we go back to Russell's internal principle in in which he says that the way to solve ethical conflicts is to ask, is to maintain and foster athletic excellence. Well, look, the, both the gentleman amateur and the professional, both in their own mind and their own historical context, according to their own social conventions, uh, Pass uh, that test. They're both pursuing athletic excellence. The problem, however, is that their view of the purpose of sport was not pitched at a high abstract reflective level that Russell and Simon were looking at it as philosophers, but they were very much giving historically situated views of what they took sport to be. And so, to my mind, the best ethical theory to deal with these different controversies is a conventionalist view which asks what is the point of this game, but from the standpoint of the social conventions that that uh, regulate and govern sport at different times in different places. And when you look at those conventions, they'll tell you 
what are the relevant athletic skills, what are the relevant mix of skills, how, how assiduous you should be in trying to win, how you should treat uh, non-competitors, uh, whether or not you should try to break the rules and the like. And so that's where I came, I, I came to develop this conventionalist theory and tried to make the argument that if we're going to really do ethical justice sport, then we need to to locate uh, any ethical theory we have about how we should act in a sporting situation. We, we need to historicize it um, uh, all the way down and consider the historical context. One of the things I really enjoyed about the book, Bill, is just, I mean, and, and again, like I don't read a lot of uh, sport philosophy, but is, is how fair a reading you give to your, your interlocutors, um, whether you're talking about formalism, uh, or, um, you know, the internalism, you, you, you give a fair account and you give a lot of credit and you really demonstrate how these different theories build on each other and actually in some ways contain the seeds of their own kind of, um, um, the, the emergence of new ideas. So if it's formalism and, 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 and suits his illusory attitude. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that word correctly. Oh, that's correct. That's correct. Um, yeah. Contributes exactly to the emergence of both your own thinking and internalist thinking about sport, right? That, oh, it can't just be about the rules because there's actually a set of unspoken rules <laughs> that everybody's playing with anyway. Um, or, or, you know, whether it comes to internalism, Russell's uh, reliance on coherentism, which for you is an indication that actually he, he thinks his own theory doesn't necessarily work that well, but you also subjected your own theory to a very strenuous critique. Uh, so I was like, "Oh, this is this was um, this was good reading." It was, but it, it was not not the kind of reading that I'm that I'm used to. But, oh. Well, I mean, I mean, the point is, uh, and I think most serious philosophers ha- have the same view. You know, it's really easy to take a position that you don't fully buy into and caricature it uh, and give the worst possible rendition of it. And, you know, it doesn't take much intelligence to, to do that and then to, and then to critique it. Um, and, and the second part of that is that these people, you know, Suits and, and Simon and Russell are all serious thinkers. They take, they take their work very seriously and they're very thoughtful people. And I think, um, uh, I mean, I couldn't have come up with my own theory were it not for my predecessors. I mean, I stand on their shoulders, I mean, to use a, uh, a kind of old saw to describe it, but I mean, I couldn't, no, nobody could make progress without um, what, what previous progress has been made by their predecessors. And, and matter of fact, I was, just in uh, Belgium, and I, uh, John and I, John Russell and I were in a debate, um, um, uh, and we traded our views back and forth very respectfully. And uh, it's safe to say John's not wholly persuaded <laughs> by my view, um, but I'm not wholly persuaded by his objections. And so, basically, the I mean, we're we're dealing with a realm of inquiry. It, it almost sounds like, though, Bill, it's like uh, more proof to your point because it feels like there are two different ethical communities. One emerged out of a kind of Kantian universalist approach to ethics, and your approach is more Hegelian, and you're not going to agree. So, 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's a very good point. Although we do share uh, a, cer- a certain set of views given the, 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 the standpoint from which we're writing. But, I mean, maybe this is a good point to, to, to try to, to, to draw out just what is distinctive about ethical inquiry. In a very rough sense, you, you could break inquiry down in three ways. First, there are what we might be called objective questions. So uh, inquiry in this regard would be, you know, what's the boiling point of water? Well, the answer is pretty clear. You know, it's 212 degrees Fahrenheit and 100 degrees centigrade. Uh, that's the right answer. Uh, there's not another answer that would satisfy the question. Uh, so there's some forms of inquiry where you can actually get an objective answer, which answers the question once and for all, for all uh, at once. On the other hand, there's a whole series of questions called subjective questions. And so if I asked you, you know, what's your favorite color or ice cream flavor you like, you're going to get all sorts of different replies. And as it turns out, assuming everyone's being truthful, they're all correct. Um, so on the one hand, you've got objective questions where you're asking a very clear question that has a, a definite answer in the back of the book. You know, if you don't know what the boiling point of water is, look it up, you'll find it. And then on the other hand, you have a, 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 a inquiry that's asking after people's preferences and likes and dislikes. And there's as many correct answers as there are people with different preferences. And oftentimes people think those are the only two type of questions that you can ask. Um, and therefore, it turns out that um, you end up in this odd situation where if a question is not an objective one, then it must be a subjective one. It means anything goes. Whatever you say has to be right. However, then you start asking yourself questions like, hmm, should, should someone get an abortion? Or should I aid a, a friend who's... Um, suffering immeasurably from a terminal disease? Or should I get a COVID shot? Or should I support the government and their vaccination mandates? Now, these are not the kind of, these are not objective questions. There's not an answer at the back of the book that answers it once and for all. But they're surely not subjective questions. I mean, if I'm asking myself, whether or not I should aid uh, a friend or relative who's dying and help them end their life, um, I, I, I better not say that the reason I didn't help them or the reason I did help them was because I felt like it. I better have a good reason. And so ethics falls into this third category of questions, which uh, are normative questions. And normative questions, unlike objective ones, don't lend themselves to one correct answer. However, unlike subjective questions, they don't simply involve people citing their preferences or or likes or dislikes. Rather, the uh, normative questions uh, uh, allow for better and worse answers. And the better answers are the ones where you can justify, give a good reason, a persuasive reason, an argument why you think the way you do. And so um, these normative questions are the way we muddle through our life and figure out how we should lead our lives. And basically, ethical theories are one example of that. There's no living without standards of living, and there's no living without ethical standards of living. And the question is whether those ethical norms or standards can survive reflective scrutiny. So I hope that helps to locate where ethical inquiry sort of falls on this 
rough schemata of objective, subjective, and normative questions, because I think it clears up a lots of questions and it helps. Um, I once got a phone call from a, a, a student who was failing my class in sport ethics. Uh, his mother called me and uh, it started off very cordially. And uh, apparently he was a cheerleader for the football team and um, he needed to maintain a 3.0 average. And so she was asking me questions about, you know, why his son was not doing well. I started the conversation by saying, you know, your son probably should be talking to me, not you, but I'd let it go. Um, and then the, the, the conversation took a turn and she said, basically, look, she said, uh, you know, uh, the, the kind of stuff that you're doing in your class, I mean, it's all opinions, you know, um, and it's just a matter of expressing your opinion. There's no right or wrong. And of course, um, that's not what's involved in ethics. It's far from that. Uh, but there's this popular conception that, you know, if you can't give a definitive answer to a question, then you're just simply left with asking, you know, letting people do what they do because they feel like it or because that's the way they want to do it or because that's how they would prefer to live their lives and the like. And God help us if we approach our ethical lives in the same way. I mean, we either make a case for what we're doing and try to justify it to others. Um, and then if we fail, then we need to change our behavior. Um, uh, I don't see any other alternative. Well, that's, I mean, I, I think that does, obviously, it helps situate this, the, the, the idea of a normative question helps situate how you understand ethics within this frame of the kinds of questions you can ask. But that's exactly the critique that many people make of, of conventionalism, right? That it's effectively relativist. Yes. Yes. So, so, and and, uh, yeah. and the answer to that is, I mean, there's the different kinds of relativism. There's a silly kind of relativism where anything goes. And as the philosopher, um, Oh, I lost his name for a second. Oh, Hillary Putnam once said, if, if um, how do you say if if one view is good is as good as any other view, then why isn't the view that relativism is false is as good as any other view? The point, of course, of which is, you know, that's silly. But there's another kind of historical um, relativism where the uh, the point is that within the conventions of inquiry at any particular time, you can have an argument uh, in which people accept as reasons. Uh, what other people accept as good reasons, and those are going to be historically contextualized reasons. But you can make an argument uh, for a conclusion that um, you should abide by, that you, you need to be held accountable to. Um, then when, of course, you change your the historical context, different reasons come into play and different kinds of arguments can be made. But you're not left with the silly view that one view is as good as any other view. I, ho- I hope that makes sense. No, that, I mean, it, I, I was, I was um, entirely persuaded by your idea of, of uh, conventionalist approaches to sports philosophy. Although I did, I did think that there might be some in some interpretive issues in trying to understand what moral or language communities were. But I think that you, I mean, you address that in your work by saying, actually, these questions are, are, are broad. Like they're actually muddy. I, there's not always going to be one answer to that question. No. And then, and I mean, a good example of that, uh, Keith, is the performance enhancing drug issues in contemporary sport. 
it seems to me that we're the reason we're at an impasse is because people are operating in the current context, historical context, with two entirely different views of sport. So you have people like Michael Sandel, philosopher Michael Sandel, mm-hmm. sure. who argues basically that uh, sport is a celebration of natural talent. Well, if you start from that position, uh, then obviously uh, uh, taking performance-enhancing drugs is a fundamental violation of, what's, of what sport should be about and about what skills should be tested. On the other hand, you have uh, people who, if you look at the cycling community, uh, basically argue that um, uh, um, sport is all about the pursuit of ultimate excellence. Uh, we use advanced technological means um, to help us um, and, uh, do better and better in sport. And uh, why shouldn't we be able to use uh, um, better living through chemistry to achieve the same thing? In which case, they would argue performance enhancing drugs have a definite place in our quest for um, supreme athletic excellence. And I don't think um, that um, anyone is going to be winning these arguments precisely because these two positions are diametrically opposed to one another. So if you start with a natural talent idea, then obviously you're always going to end up arguing against performance-enhancing drugs. On the other hand, if you start with the pursuit of athletic excellence, um, then performance-enhancing drugs are going to have a place in um, in our evaluative vocabularies about how sports should be done. My own thought is that probably 20, 30 years from now, um, I think performance-enhancing drugs are going to be viewed as a, a, a as a suitable way to do sport. I don't know how she get around that when an old guy like me can go to a doctor and complain I'm lacking in virility and vitality and I can get steroids to, you know, to juice up my own life. Uh, How is it that I can do that and an athlete can't do that? It doesn't make sense. Yeah. I, um, I, I would point out too, I mean, in weightlifting, there's about eight different international, weightlifting organizations that each have different rules about what kind of supplements you're allowed to take <laughs> with one, 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 one saying none. And then the, and at the other end of the spectrum, uh, you know, another saying basically, you know, almost anything. <laughs> and so yeah. Well, I mean, some people, some people have argued the way to handle the, the drug issues just to have different competition uh, leagues. So you can have a, uh, competitions for non-drug users, and then you can have competitions for people who use amphetamines, and then you might have a competition class for people who use steroids. The only trouble with that idea is that uh, people will enter these different competitions. Um, you know, if, a lot of people who do, who do performance enhancing drugs might opt, uh, opt to uh, land in the non-drug competition just to get an advantage. So it's we're yeah. sort of stuck there, but at least it's a, a, an attempt at a little bit more honesty and transparency. But um, at any rate, given my conventionalist approach, we are going to reach stalemates. And this leads me to one other ethical theory that I play with at the end of my book, and that's what I call the moral entrepreneur. Um, and basically, the, and the way to think about this is, Back in the '60s, in the in the Boston Marathon, um, women were not allowed to compete, um, and um, uh, I mean they, they strictly were forbidden from competing. And there was a runner who's become famous 
uh, a woman who, let me see, I'm going to look up her name very quickly here because I had forgotten it. Uh, do I not have, yeah, here it is. Her name was uh, Catherine Schweitzer, and she got around the male-only eligibility provision uh, uh, to obtain an official running number by registering as KV Switzer. So the racing officials just thought, oh, well, it's just another male contestant. And it wasn't until two miles into the race that they realized she was had actually was racing, was in the race itself. And they attempted to forcibly remove her from the course and tear off her number. But her boyfriend at the time fended them off and she finished the race. Um, but, of course, she was officially disqualified at the finish. And in accordance with the masculinist sort of conventions of the time was berated by journalists and bystanders who let her know and so on terms that she was not, that real women don't run. So the point about the moral entrepreneur is that there is a weakness in conventionalism. And the weakness is that sometimes these conventions uh, are exclusionary. So uh, they exclude women often and obviously when you talk about the Paralympics they exclude um, uh, uh, athletes with disabilities and so this notion of the moral entrepreneur I introduce it comes from uh, Richard Posner a philosopher of law and actually a judge Um, and basically uh, what Posner argued is that sometimes what we need to do to move forward is to stop arguing within the, the whatever the current conventions are and re-describe sport, either re-describe uh, familiar sports in unfamiliar ways or to invent brand new sports. So, for example, the uh, philosopher Jane English um, wrote um, an important paper in which she argued that, um, look, uh, sports uh, that are played um, today and in her time, they were created by men and for men, and therefore it's it's no wonder why male athletes do better than female athletes. And what she pointed to was if we had lived in a, in a matriarchal culture instead of a patriarchal culture, that the the major sports would not would not be uh, baseball or football or basketball or cricket or rugby or soccer or football. Uh, but they would be sports like the balance beam, which emphasize flexibility and grace and the like. And so she took this model of the balance beam in which the best athletes are women athletes. And she said, look, we need to invent new sports that privilege the female body rather than the male body. So this is what a moral entrepreneur does. He tries, he or she tries to look at the situation and say, let's, instead of arguing with one another according to our present conventions, Let's reimagine sport. Let's redescribe it in certain ways. So you can take, for example, you can redescribe a sport like uh, tennis or hockey and look at the difference between the way men play tennis and women play tennis and the difference between the way men play hockey and women play hockey. Uh, So that's one way to reimagine sports. And the other way would be to concoct brand new sports. Um, And so I just throw that moral entrepreneur as a kind of ethical theory in it at the end Precisely because sometimes we need our moral horizons expanded. Um, And you can look at the civil rights uh, movement that way, and you can certainly look at the gay and lesbian movement from that same standpoint. We need to, as it were, think outside of the box. 
Um, and, uh, and that's the way that we, we can move on morally when we get stuck in these stalemates um, that we see in performance-enhancing drugs. So maybe that's the way that that performance-enhancing drug issue will work out as well. But I think moral entrepreneurs are really important precisely because they change our conception of sport and ask us, to, what do you think about doing sport this way? Um, so anyway, that's, that's, uh, that's a way to address what I think is probably the most important weakness of conventionalism. Well, certainly when I was reading, I thought to myself and reading the first chapter where you're tracing out um, amateurism and professionalism, and then you're in your um, final chapter on conventionalism, I was thinking to myself, actually, what is the, the agent of change? You know, amateurism is effectively kind of, you know, in the way, in, and actually, I think something, I should say something to people who haven't read the book, by the way. Your definition of amateurism and professionalism is not what other people's definition of amateurism and professionalism are, because you don't actually center money at the at the at the no, center of that issue. That does really rich. My, my sport historians like Mark Dyerson and the like, who pointed out that there's much more to these notions than what we've made of them in the contemporary era. So I'm I'm hoping I'm right about that because I'm no, borrowing no, no, historians. I, I, yeah. You know, it totally uh, it totally jives with my understanding okay. of amateurism and professionalism and it makes sense to me not only within the context of British sport um, but also within the context of it, the the um, the transnational migrations of ideas about amateurism and professionalism sure, sure, uh, as sure. it emerges in France um, and this yeah. go ahead I'm no, sorry. No, you please. <laughs> they want to hear you. Well, no, I was me. just going to say that, that you made a really important uh, comment about this agent of change. If you look at the the Schweitzer case, she was obviously an agent of change. Basically, what she was doing was, I mean, it's not as if nobody knew that mail-only provision was, was uh, a, a, a rule of the Boston Marathon. Everybody knew that. But what she did was she actually... Uh, drew everyone's attention to, look, you have this rule and here I am in the race and I, I may not win this race, but how is it that I don't belong? Now, the, the, these are the, these are the, it's like Smith and Carlos in the 1968 games when they raised their fists with the black glove. It's the same. They're agents of change. The problem, however, and this is why we need the moral entrepreneur is that, um, Schweitzer could be an agent of change, but within the current context and conventions of that particular sport, she was still uh, ruled in, um, ineligible, and she was disqualified, I should say. And if she tried to pitch her argument within the current conventions of the sport, she wouldn't be able to get very far. So the agent of change, she's instigating some, she's getting us to think about why we have such a rule in sport, but we then we need the moral entrepreneur to come along and say, hey, let's think about sport in ways that would be more congenial to female bodies or disabled bodies. Um, and I, it's I not to... until we change, change that, convent, that context that her argument can get off the ground. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it makes total sense. And actually, I mean, I have to admit, I the way I read books is very particular because I would be, I just love my training. So I, I read an introduction and then I read the conclusion and then I read the book. Right. But oh, that's interesting. So okay. I, I'd already read your moral, uh, um, 
you know, you're a moral entrepreneur. So I, I had a sense of kind of that response. But then when I was reading um, your chapter on uh, Simon and Dixon, um, who seemed at the time to be your strongest critics, and you responded to them in part in, in your own chapter as well, one of their strongest critiques of your work is actually that it just reifies power relations as they already exist in sport. And so I, you know, I already knew what your response was to that because I was like, oh, I, I didn't read it in the right order. I, I, if, I'd, if I'd followed the rules, I would have appreciated the book in a different way. But um, yeah, so I thought, I think, I mean, I think the moral, the idea of the moral entrepreneur does a lot within the theory of conventionalism in order to make it, to make it comprehensible within this, this um, longer history. But, but because your method is historicist, your work not only can look kind of at that longer durée and understand because of that moral entrepreneur, how things change over time, but also does an excellent job of actually considering things in their time and place, which maybe some of the other theories don't actually do quite as right. well. And that's what I was h- hoping to show. And, and the, the other thing I should say about the moral entrepreneur is that, you know, these these people who redescribe or reimagine sports sometimes what they reimagine or redescribe nobody takes it up so they're just flashes in the pan however in order for it to work basically what they're trying to do is prod us cause us to sort of change our beliefs hoping that it catches on and then when it catches on if 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 people resonate with this new way of thinking about sport then new conventions develop uh, around this new description of sport and now you can get an argument going all, uh, all over again. Argument can, can start all over. So while conventions have a limitation and we need moral entrepreneurs, in order for moral entrepreneurs to be successful, their reimagination and redescription of sport have to catch on and have to, have to attract a community of support in which we can then develop other conventions that then become ethical norms for doing sport in this new way. And so it's an interesting... Conventions aren't the, the, the final story, as it were, but you can't get away from conventions in the end because that's basically all we've got to go on in terms of making a case for why we should do certain things in sport and uh, avoid doing other things in sport. Yeah, I, 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 even as I was reading, though, I have to admit, at some points in time, I was a little trepidatious because I was thinking to myself, okay, so how could I try to answer some moral questions in sport using yeah. these different theories? And I am not a sport philosopher, so um, I might not be doing a good job with that. But if I think to myself, okay, so the issue of paying um, NCAA athletes, for example, yes. a formalist approach would just go, the rules say you don't do that, Yes, <laughs> which yes. is not very satisfying. No. An internalist approach might say, um, you know, from a Rawlsian perspective, it doesn't make sense for us not to do this. There's a, there's a kind of universalist ethic that we should pay people for their labor. So therefore, you know, we should pay players. How does a conventionalist approach answer that question? I I don't want to speak for you. And since I have the expert at conventionalist approaches here, I'd love to hear, I'd love to hear it. Well, actually, I I think the conventionalist take uh, coincides here with the broad internalist take. And that's basically um, let's stop pretending that the historical context is an amateur one. I mean, coaches are getting paid enormous sums of money. Athletic directors are getting paid enormous sums of money. The athletic department is basically a business 
department. The context is clearly that no one, <laughs> no one thinks it's a good idea to um, labor for nothing except those in power um, who think that those who actually do the labor shouldn't get anything. So in the current conventions, this is obviously a professional conception of sport. Uh, and therefore, it doesn't make any sense that athletes shouldn't get paid. Now, that said, ethically speaking, you have to figure out how to work this system. And the dirty secret or little secret about American sports or college sports, which is so different from every country in the world in terms of, of how uh, sports at, uh, at this stage are done, is that uh, most of these program, athletic uh, programs are losing hemorrhaging money. And so how they're going to pay athletes and, you know, uh, and, and are they going to pay quarterbacks more than they are offensive linemen and, and the like? There's a, a whole slew of practical problems that have to be worked out. But clearly the, the, the conception of sport we're operating with is a semi-professional one. And uh, it's pretty clear that if that's the, the context in which sport is being done, then denying payment to athletes makes no sense whatsoever. Um, now, maybe we can, a moral entrepreneur can come along and reimagine sports, and uh, maybe, maybe this whole linkage of educational institutions to these lavish athletic programs, um, uh, someone will say, hey, this makes no sense. Maybe we need to do club sports the way they do in Europe or in Australia or whatever the case might be. I mean, it's... It's bizarre because at my current university, Southern California, which is a very good top-rate private university, um, because of COVID and the like, they um, professors didn't get a, a salary increase this year. But um, as you know, they just hired a brand new young hot coach from the University of Oklahoma, and uh, they paid him an enormous sum of money and. Um, we don't know all the details, but um, it's just bizarre to live in a country where the highest paid um, em- employee of the of the state is almost always a football coach. It just doesn't make any sense. It's widely skewed in terms of what professors get paid. So that we're living in pretty incoherent times right now. Yeah, yeah, I, I uh, to say I agree. the least. Yeah, to say the least. And if USC had been the only school to have one of these blockbuster deals, but I, I read that LSU's um, stealing away Notre Dame's coach and all of these guys getting buyouts and the amount of money. Is, yeah. Is, <laughs> and to say, to say nothing of leaving behind players that they recruited and, uh, and the like. And, you know, when you look at, um, I don't mean this as a slight at LSU, but you, if you look at Notre Dame, it's a very fine university, uh, LSU is a good university, but um, if I were a professor, I'd be wanting to go the other way. Hmm. Although I might be getting myself in trouble by saying that. Well, I, I was just thinking I might prefer to live in Baton Rouge than South Bend. but <laughs> Yeah, well, that from a weather standpoint, possibly, but it's brutally hot in, uh, yeah. in, in Baton Rouge. Brutally I, hot and humid. I think it's just familiarity because I'm from that part of the, you know, industrial oh. midwest so i okay uh... <laughs> okay yeah well i lived i did my graduate work in minneapolis so that's <laughs> a very very cold place um lovely that, city but very cold now that i've lived for five years in sydney my blood is too thin to move back to the, the snow 
That's what people in Australia say, by the way. They don't, it doesn't snow. You, you go to the snow because that's how, <laughs> that's how rare snow is. You go to yeah. the snow. Well, living in LA, I don't see snow either. Although it's the, the thing about Los Angeles is I can go two miles and surf and then travel two hours east and go skiing. Um, so, and I mean snow skiing. Oh, that doesn't sound so bad. But, no. Bill, it's been great talk, talking with you um, about your book. Like I, I, like I say, for people who haven't read the book, this was, I don't want to call it an easy conversation because it was a rich and, and um, a book that was thick with kind of analysis and description and example that was, that uh, I benefited from a careful reading of, uh, but it is a kind of, um, it is a very intense conversation and a very fair conversation that, that Bill is having that um, Bill's having with himself and with the formalists and the broad and internalists, whether they're metaphysical or, or discourse based. And um, so in that way, I feel like it gave me a set of tools for thinking about sport sports ethics in a more coherent, uh, more systematic way. And I was utterly convinced by your, um, by your historicist approach, although you might be preaching to the choir since I'm an historian. <laughs> well, I, 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 I don't know, but I really appreciate those kind, kind words. And I really appreciate being interviewed by someone who actually really read my book. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's a rarity, uh, but uh, it's quite obvious to me you've closely read the book and I very much appreciate it. And it's been much fun talking to you, Keith. I look, I look forward to um, future conversations, perhaps. Thank you very much, Bill, for joining us. We've been talking today with Bill, or William, I should say, William or Bill Morgan. He's the author of Sport and Moral Conflict, a Conventionalist Theory. It's out from Temple University Press in 2020, available to you now. Go and check it out. Thank you again for joining us, Bill. Thank you. It's been my pleasure.